Well, let's consider that great marriage supper of the Lamb by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 this evening. Revelation chapter 19, we'll read God's Word under the heading of, This shall truly and surely be. This shall truly and surely be. From Revelation 19, and then afterwards we'll turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 52. We're going to back up into chapter 18 for a little bit of context this evening, beginning our reading in verse 21. Chapter 18, verse 21, but our scripture meditation, as I say, is Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10, but we'll begin our reading with chapter 18, verse 21. John writes, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who had been slain on the earth. And here's our Scripture text for this evening. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many thunders, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here ends the reading of God's word this evening. And then we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism, which can be found in the forms and prayers in the pew in front of you. The Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 52. Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 257. 
Question 127. What does the sixth petition mean to which we respond? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of Your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. Question 128. How do you conclude this prayer? For Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of You because as our all-powerful King, You are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because Your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. And then turn the page to question 129. What does that little word Amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be. For it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from Him. Beloved congregation, this evening as we conclude our year-long study on the Heidelberg Catechism, in so doing we also conclude its teaching on prayer. I like the way one author puts it about prayer. He says the hardest part about praying is remembering that you're praying. That the hardest part about praying can be remembering that you are praying. Have you ever felt this? We begin our prayers, our Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus, and we begin to bring our petitions before Him, and then our mind begins to wander. I wonder what, how he or she is doing. Oh, this is that one situation. I, I should have said that to that person. And before you know it, our minds are far afield. See, I think this author is right. Often in prayer, we can forget that we're talking to the all-powerful God of the universe. That however weak our faith might be, that our prayers go straight to the throne of God. And that He hears and that He answers our prayers for Jesus' sake. See, that's what that little word, Amen, expresses. That it's a guarantee. That you can count on it when you bring petitions to the Lord in Jesus' name. He hears it truly and surely. And see, that conclusion to this prayer of Jesus teaches us two of the most important things, two of the most important virtues about the Christian's life. Humility and trust. Humility. Because when we come to God in prayer, we're saying to Him, God, I can't do it on my own. Help me. Change me. Rescue me. But it must also be brought in trust that God receives and answers our prayers. You see, Christians in prayer must be both humble and confident. 
we must be both meek and bold, coming in humility, but also coming in the blood of Jesus. And how important this is this evening. Because as Lord's Day 52 makes clear, Christians are in a spiritual struggle. We are in a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, our sworn enemies. That we are a people who are of great need. But when we pray, deliver us from evil, for Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We can be assured that God hears and He sends aid and He will help us in His grace. Isn't this what John sees in heaven? That God has heard the petitions and heard of the needs of His people. And He answers that the enemy has been defeated. That the enemy will be defeated. And that His people are saved. And His people will be saved. God has already ordained the defeat of our enemies and the salvation of our church. Amen. This shall truly and surely be. I want to show you this in three points together this evening. Hallelujah. Our enemies are defeated. Hallelujah. A radiant bride. And then hallelujah. A wedding invitation. First, let's look at hallelujah. Enemies defeated. Christians, we need to remember this old saying that whoever has God as his friend has Satan as his enemy. Whoever has God as his friend has Satan as his enemies. Christian, we need to remember that evil is a reality. And we do ourselves no favors when we pretend it doesn't exist or that there's no such thing. This is why Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He assumes that evil is real, that Satan, this world, and the struggle in our flesh is real, but he also assumes that there is something greater. He assumes that there is something more powerful, that there is something that can triumph over evil in this world, and it is God. Notice with me, Revelation 19, verse 1, Verse 1 says this, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Jump down to verse 3, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. See, this passage is often known as the wedding or the marriage supper of the Lamb. It describes a wedding in verses 6-10. through 10. But what's often overlooked is how in verses 1 through 5, what's first being described is actually a funeral. John begins with the funeral of Babylon. Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 18. And you'll see that John's vision begins with this great funeral for Babylon. Chapter 18, verse 2, he writes, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And boys and girls, what John is describing here is not the Babylon of 
600 B.C., 600 years before Jesus came, that was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, we read about in Daniel. But in the book of Revelation, Babylon is a representation of the world. It's a figure, it's a picture of the sinful world in which we live. If you still have your Bibles open to Revelation 18, you might recognize some of the things of the world in which we live also being pictured in Babylon. In verse 2, John says Babylon is described as perverting the true religion of Jesus. And of course we see that in our world. We prayed about that this evening with Gabriella. How they mix the Roman Catholic church, uh, the Roman Catholic teaching, and they mixed in their paganism, and she was preaching against that. You remember? See, we live in a world where we've perverted religion. We live in a world, verse two. We it says that promotes sexual promiscuity. Verse three, drunkenness. Verse seven, pride. Babylon even sets herself up, verses seven and sixteen, as someone who is against God. She sets her up as sets herself up as someone who is opposed to God, who is above God. You see, in John's vision, every time a believer sees injustice in this world, every time a believer suffers for righteousness' sake, every time they're tempted by idolatry, every time they're lewd, lured into immorality, John says, that's Babylon. That's the world. See, when John says Babylon, she represents our sworn enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now I want to highlight something our catechism is trying to point out to you. Look at question 127. It quotes Jesus' words from Matthew 5 when he says, Deliver us from evil, singular. But then notice how the catechism explains it. Our sworn enemies, plural. The devil, the world, our own flesh. See, the instructor is providing commentary here. It's not that Jesus forgot about the world and forgot about our own flesh, but Jesus singles out, you could say, the commander-in-chief of evil, Satan himself. But the catechism explains we are, in a, we are in a battle, folks. And we are in a battle against a sworn enemy. A superior enemy. In fact, this enemy is so superior, the catechism says, it's a three-on-one deal, folks. Not that I support it, nor do I encourage it, but if you were to get into a brawl, and it's three versus one, how is that going to go for you? You lose. See, what the catechism is drawing out for us is that the world in which we live, our sworn enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are strong. It says, in question 127, that we are so weak, and it is strong. We cannot stand, and it has stood for so long. Our own flesh is even against us. And see, sometimes we as Christians really resonate with these words. We think there's no way I can overcome evil. There's no way 
I can break this addiction. I'm too weak and it's too strong. We think there's no way this world can be purified and saved. It's too corrupt. I'm too broken. You see the strength of Babylon. But verse 1, suddenly, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven This is the saints, past, present, and future. Joined with the multitude of the heavenly hosts. Joined with the elders who are before the throne. All cry out, Hallelujah! Which is a Hebrew word. Which means, praise God. They say, Hallelujah! Even though we were assailed by a superior force, even though victory looked so bleak, even though they never stop attacking, says the Heidelberg Catechism, the world, though she was strong, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. See, beloved, the church must strive with the world, but remember that the church will survive the world. When God is for us, who can be against us? We need to remember that this world is progressing to this end. The funeral of Babylon. The world is progressing not to a stronger evil. Not to an impenetrable force. But to the destruction of Babylon and the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, though the church often looks so small and so weak, and though our faith often looks so small and so weak, remember when God is with you, it's not about numbers. So it was with Elijah and Elisha. You remember in 2 Kings 6, Elisha saw no way for uh, God to be successful And so Elijah prays, Lord, open his eyes, and he sees the legions of angels and the chariots that surrounded them to protect them. See, with God, even though it was only two men with God, the victory was sure. Another example might be Gideon's army in Judges chapter 7. 32,000 men to march against the Midianites. That's too many, God says, so whittle it down to 10,000. 10,000 men, God says. It's, it's too many. Whittle it down to 300. Because with God, even when the victory seems so bleak, and there seems to be no prospect of success, with Him, the victory is sure. This is so God gets the glory, folks. When even things look so bleak and poor, and God overthrows Babylon, it is so He gets the glory. And that's what they're doing. They're praising God, even at this funeral service of Babylon. We have a picture of incredible heavenly worship. Three times the saints and angels cry out, Hallelujah! 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 Again, this means praise God! Praise God! Praise God! In these five verses. And I want to show you three reasons from these verses that we should join in with these saints and angels in praising God. First reason, 
Praise God, for He is the Redeemer. They say, verse 1, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They praise Him because when He judged Babylon and struck her down and they were at her funeral, Hendrickson says they praise Him because He has finally perfected their salvation. This is the final stage of God's plan of redemption. When all evil, evil people and evil things, when Satan and his demons will be removed from this earth and destroyed. The Scriptures say at that time He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And He will make every wrong right. Praise God, the Redeemer. Secondly, he says, praise, or we should see, praise God for He is faithful. They say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. They worship Him because God, what God has said He will do, He has done. He had promised that He would punish Babylon according to the measure of her sins and He has done so. He has promised that He would vindicate the saints. He has done so. He made a promise that He would be faithful. And He has done so. Praise Him for He redeems. Praise Him for He is faithful. And thirdly, praise Him for His justice. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is actually a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah said this about Edom in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 10. And it was a reference to the fact that once God judges a nation, they will never rise again. See, on that last day, all that will be left of wickedness and evil and death and cancer and sin, all that will be left of it is smoke. And God will stand triumphant over His enemies. And so they worship Him. And maybe this doesn't make sense to you this evening. You'd say, why are the saints and the angels rejoicing at a funeral? Much less a funeral of billions and billions of people who are in hell. Why are they rejoicing? They should be weeping, we think. Well, to be clear, they are not rejoicing in the death of the wicked. Even God doesn't do that. Believers are rejoicing in heaven. In this picture, because they were tempted by Babylon. They were enticed by evil. Even though they might have been lured into sin for a time. They rejoice because God has saved some of them for His glory. Hallelujah! Even though I deserved justice, I have received mercy. Hallelujah! Even though I should be in hell, I'm at the foot of the throne. Hallelujah! Even though I should be at the funeral, I am going to the wedding. Brothers and sisters, we need to punctuate our prayers with this. 
Because Jesus teaches us that we need to bring our sins. We need to bring our trials. We need to bring our failures to Him. But let us not go discouraged. Let us go to God in prayer knowing that evil will be destroyed. Isn't it a beautiful thing to see this scene and say amen? It truly and surely shall be. Every wicked thing, every evil thought, every evil deed, God has overcome. And so we see our second point. We've seen the funeral. Hallelujah, the enemies have been defeated. But hallelujah, there's also a wedding. The radiant bride. See, John is caught up in this vision of worship. And as the saints and angels are singing, we could say that the tune changes from a a funeral song to here comes the bride. We move directly from a funeral to the wedding of the Lamb. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now the kind of wedding that's being described here is not a Western style wedding. What's actually being described is a Jewish wedding and this would have looked a little bit different from ours and so I want to show you a few differences this evening. See, when someone is engaged in North America, we could describe it as being on the second step on the road to commitment. You're not dating. You're not married. You could still break up if you want to. But in the ancient world, to be engaged, or what they, how they put it, to be betrothed was much more binding. If you consider... Matthew's words in Matthew chapter 1 about Mary and Joseph, it says in Matthew 1.18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and listen to this, and her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, the betrothal was much more binding, and it would have been done or how someone would have been betrothed, I should say, would have been done in the presence of witnesses. Now Mary and Joseph would have been there, or whoever was being betrothed would have been there. And those expectations and the terms of the marriage covenant would have been accepted by the people who were being betrothed. There would be a blessing pronounced upon them and their union together, but then they would go their separate ways for a time. The bride would not move in with the husband, They wouldn't even live together. Deuteronomy 20, verse 7 tells us that the bride stays in her father's home and the husband goes off to earn enough money so that he can pay the bride price or what other places call the dowry. So he had to go and make money. We see that's what Joseph was doing. He was a carpenter, building homes, making money, getting ready to go to his father-in-law's house, and to buy his bride. And once he had enough, he would put on his best clothes. He would gather all his friends and his family. And he would take that money, and he would go to his father-in-law's house, and he would pay the bride price, and he would take his bride home, and they would begin their life together. They'd have this week-long celebration and festivities, and they have this 
marriage suffer. Why do I tell you all this? Because Christians, all Christians, are betrothed to Christ. Paul says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Here is Paul's meaning. If you are a Christian this evening, you are engaged to be His. And with His own precious blood, Jesus has paid the bride price for you. And John says that one day Jesus is coming again for His bride. He is coming for the church. He is coming to lead us home to the Father's house. To stand before the Father without spot or wrinkle. And the festivities and the celebration and the marriage supper will not only be for a week, but will be in the, in the presence of God for all of eternity. And we'll stand before Him. And we'll live before Him for His glory. You see, for many of us, the wedding day, our wedding day, is the greatest day of our lives. But the marriage of Jesus and His bride will be the greatest eternity you will ever have. Your greatest day over and over and over again. In fact, James Hamilton puts it this way. He says this will be the greatest marriage ever because never has there been a more worthy groom. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, accomplished more to win his bride. Never has a wealthy father ever put on a greater feast. Never has there been a more glorious residence provided as a home for a bride. Never has there been so great rejoicing. Never has there been so great an exaltation. Never so great a celebration when the bride is given to the Lamb. You know what's so amazing about this wedding? It's a one-sided affair. I'm a married man. Married here in North America. When Lisa and I married, we did so because we loved each other. But the Bible does not say that Jesus loved us because we were so lovable. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a one-sided affair. We love because He first loved us. 1 John 4.19 The groom loves while the bride is still a sinner. He loves even though we are unattractive and unworthy. Though our hearts are against Him, the Bible says He loved. See, this marriage supper of the Lamb shows us the greatness of His love. The bride, though she is unclean, unfaithful, and adulterous, is loved with a perfect love. Paul says no mind can fathom the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of God's love. John tells us he loved his, own, loved his very own all the way to the end. That's the fullest love, the farthest reaches of his love. That's what he gave to his bride. And he loved the bride all the way to Calvary and paid that bride price with his own very blood. Joel Beakey puts it this way, Oh, the outflowing, ever-flowing, overflowing love of God. He sought the best He could find, even His own Son, to give Him for the worst He could find, even hell-bent sinners like you and me. Close quote. That is the glory of the marriage supper. 
Not the pageantry, not the food, not the wine, but as we read in our Heidelberg Catechism, that the all-powerful king is willing and able to give all that is good. Even the greatest good. Willing to give himself for the bride. And we know who the bride of Christ is. The Bible tells us it's the church. And notice how the church is described in that day. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. How is it that the adulterous, the sinful, the unworthy and unattractive bride can be described in that day as pure, as perfect, and as holy. Well, sometimes when people get married, they come, one might come with a substantial debt, the other might come with a substantial equity. And when they marry, they merge their accounts, and the debt is canceled. And so this is what Christ has done for us. When he takes his bride, he pays it all. That He becomes one flesh with the church. And though she has no righteousness, He is a surplus of righteousness. And He clothes us in His righteousness. And though we have the greatness of sin, He takes it upon Himself. And the bride is made pure and perfect and holy because of her husband. In fact, Revelation 7, verse 14 says that the saints have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. This is the greatness of heaven. That Jesus was willing and able to give us all that He is for all that we are. Sinful and fallen though we may be. And perfect and righteous though He is. One thing that comes out again and again in this chapter is how the saints cannot keep themselves from worshiping. John, even at one part, point foolishly falls on his face and begins to worship an angel. He's so full of worship. Brothers and sisters, should this not lead us as well to rejoicing and exalting and giving Him the glory? He should receive all the praise forever and ever for His greatness. Now, there's finally one thing I want to show you from this. There's a wedding invitation in this passage. The question needs to be asked this evening. Are you going to the funeral? Or are you going to the wedding? All of history is marching towards this end. Are you Babylon or the bride? Well, John tells us this you are invited to the wedding feast. Write this, says the angel. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You are invited. This evening in the preaching of the Word, I invite you by faith to come to Christ. The invitation is there. It's of particular notice. Write this, he says. Make sure it's written down in the Bible. 
that all who read it are invited to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not just to be the guest, but to be the bride herself. See, when Jesus invites sinner to the marriage supper, He invites them to be the bride. He invites them to be married to Himself. That He would take upon your sin and you would receive His righteousness. He invites you this evening to come to heaven for all of eternity. He invites you to a joy that surpasses words. He invites you to an intimacy that surpasses human marriage. That one day we'll see Him and be made perfectly like Him and be with Him forever. Amen. This is what the ancient writers called the beatific, the beautiful vision. That when we'll see Jesus, we will be perfectly loved and perfectly known by Him. That when we see Him, He will be our best friend. He will be our closest companion and our God. Peter writes, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is what we look forward to, my friends. Though we see through a mirror darkly now, we will see Him face to face. Just a little story to illustrate this. When Lisa and I were planning our wedding, she requested that during the ceremony I not wear my glasses. I guess I'm more handsome without them. You can be the judge of that. And I'm not much of a contacts guy. And so what this means was that during the wedding ceremony, I I couldn't really see her. From afar, anyways. And so, the wedding begins. It's 100 degrees out. Here comes the bride. And everyone stands. And I can see vaguely that someone is coming down the aisle in radiant white. And let me just tell you, I was even excited for that. She was beautiful even in the blurry, fuzzy vision. And then when she got close to me, the closer she could see, or the closer she got, the more beautiful she became. And so it will be in glory. We see through a glass darkly, but one day we will see Him face to face. He's coming, beloved. And all who accept His invitation will be able to see Him, will be made like Him, and will become perfect in body and soul just as He is. And see, John is so overwhelmed by this. He falls on his face and begins to worship the angel and says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. See, as the Catechism says, Not we deserve the glory, but He should receive all the praise. See, my friends, what Jesus is inviting you to this evening is an invitation to be His bride. And He offers this invitation freely and without price. 
All you need to do is say, Father, forgive me for Jesus' sake. Amen. And this will truly and surely be heard and truly and surely be answered. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that for the last year we've been able to go through the Heidelberg Catechism and that we know this evening that it will truly and surely be that our enemies will be defeated as they have already been disarmed at the cross, but one day they will be defeated. That we will be that radiant bride, sinful though we are. It shall truly and surely be. And Father, even for sinners here today, that as surely as we look to You in faith, and trust in that wedding invitation, it shall truly and it shall surely be. We ask, Lord, that You would prick our hearts, that You would open us up to this truth and that we might receive it with a believing heart this evening. Give us the grace to believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.